Welcome to my podcast. This is the second of my podcasts and we're going to talk about mental issues and I'm going to come at them from a different angle I think than most psychologists or um, doctors would. Some years ago a doctor, a neurologist, Dr. Ramakandran was consultant in a in a mental uh, institution and he was being shown round various patients with neuro- neurological issues. A lot of these people had had motorcycle accidents and strokes and this kind of thing. And the nurses said, well, this next patient, she's, she's very interesting. Um, she's had a stroke, but she doesn't know she's had a stroke. So Dr. Ramakandran thought, well, this should be a very easy issue to deal with and that's going to show her that she's had a stroke. So he's introduced to the woman and he says, uh, um, can you touch my nose with your um, with your right hand? And, and she does. And then he says, well, can you touch my nose with your left hand? And nothing happens. Now, she had had the stroke in the right side of her brain, which disabled the left side of her body, so she was unable to move her left hand. So he says to her, well, are you going to do this? Are you going to touch my nose with your left hand? And she says, oh, oh, I just did, doctor, didn't you see? So he realises he's got a problem here, and he sets some exercises, like trying to tie her shoelaces and things like this, which is actually pretty impossible with one hand, and he said he had to drag her away or she would have been there all day. Now, he did uh, quite a bit of research into this, and it's an issue, uh, a syndrome called anosognosia. And it's been recorded in, in a few instances. And he noticed something that nobody else had noticed, that this only affects patients who have had a stroke in the right hemisphere of the brain. So he did a lot of work in this, and he was a, a neurologist, and he's developed quite a few um, theories. It's quite well known nowadays. Um, and he developed this idea that the left side of the brain forms patterns, uh, logic, and working out causes and effects. And the right side of the brain is what he called the devil's advocate it's not a phrase I use myself but what he was coming from is that it's the side of the brain that questions these patterns to see whether they're still appropriate so in other words we form certain ideas and then as time goes on we readjust those ideas we question them and we adapt Now, the woman with anosognosia, because the right side of the brain that was the devil's advocate side had broken down through the stroke, she wasn't able to reformulate her idea of how her body and her mind functioned. So she was unable to understand that the left side of the brain now that the the left the, sorry the left hand and the left side of her body now functioned in the in the way that it didn't function differently to the way it used to let's put it that way 
Um, now, I don't quite like the phrase the devil's advocate, but it is something that's been acknowledged in many, many other different forms. Milton Erickson, the, the founder, I suppose, of modern-day hypnotherapy, formulated a method of hypnosis which is called the pattern interrupt. So, for instance, when you're going to shake somebody's hand, there's a, there's a handshake interrupt where you grab the hand in a certain way and you manoeuvre it. And this is so unexpected that the person goes into a temporary shock, as it were. And in that moment, you say certain things and you do certain things and you get them into a deep state of hypnosis. If you get onto YouTube and you look at uh, Darren Brown, who's um, uh, it's a stage hypnotist and conjurer and so on, he, he's got some examples of actually doing this. So this is really a better way of looking at it. It's the pattern interrupt. Now, the way I express this is that the left side of the brain is concerned with space and time. And the right side of the brain is about being in this moment, the awareness of the moment. So from our experience of the moment, we then develop patterns which we use. And there's that constant flow from the right side of the brain to the left side of the brain in, uh, in, in healthy people. Now... Um, Jill Bolte Taylor was a professor of what's called neuroanatomy, the anatomy of the brain. And I think she was at Harvard University. And she was very much trained in conventional science. And she was quite derisory about people who talked about left and right brain thinking they were to her hippie notions. And then one day, I think from memory, it was uh, December the 10th, 1996, she woke up um, and discovered that she had had, uh, there was something not quite right in her brain. In fact, she'd had an aneurysm. It was um, bleeding of an artery in her brain. Now, this was in the um, in the left hemisphere of her brain. And she noticed that something was wrong and she realised that gradually her left brain functions were shutting down. Now, the left brain controls the right side of the, brain, of the, the body and is also concerned with these patterns, with functioning of space and time. She realised there was something wrong. She made her way down to the, to the telephone. This was before the days of the internet, and she tried to look up a number to dial on a, on a refidex, on a phone system. Now, gradually, her recognition, her pattern recognition was shutting down. And she found she was unable to recognise the actual numbers. She had to painstakingly compare each number to the numbers on the keypad, press the relevant keypad, cover up the number so they knew she, which number she had dialed, and then move on to the next one. But at the same time, something rather interesting was happening. Her consciousness shifted 
momentarily from that left side of the brain to the right side of the brain. And the way she puts this, she says, it pains me as a scientist to use this terminology, but she said, I was at one with the universe. There was no space, there was no time, there was no I. And then she would return to that left brain, and she had no idea in real sense of time how long she had been away. And she'd painstakingly press the next button and so on. She finally got through to her office, but when the person answered, she couldn't understand them and they couldn't understand her because language is a function of the left side of the brain. Now, it took her many years to recover from this and it completely changed her whole view of reality. Now, this left and right brain functioning has huge repercussions into the way we think about mental illnesses, mental functioning, and so on. I alluded in my last um, audio that a lot of the problems that people have is caused by overthinking. Now, all these thoughts are about another time and another place. They originate on the left side of the brain. Meditation, when done correctly, brings us into an awareness of our functioning and of our senses, and something nowadays called mindfulness, and brings us into the right side of the brain. It detaches us from those thoughts. Now, you can even observe your own thoughts. You can detach from your own thoughts. This gives us distance and able to slow those thoughts down. If you don't feed them, they start to fade away. There's two syndromes, and I talked about these in the last audio, um, Asperger's and autism. So Asperger's is a, where we're stuck, where the people are stuck in that left hemisphere. They're form patterns at an early age, and they're unable to change them. They're unable to get back into that right hemisphere. The devil's advocate part, as it were, doesn't function, so they're stuck in patterns, which they find very difficult to change. The conventional autistic, who has no language skills, is unable to form the patterns. They're stuck in the right hemisphere. So we can see that autism and Asperger's are related, but separate syndromes. So we can see that meditation takes us into that right hemisphere. It slows down the train of thoughts that goes through our mind, a thought that's linked to the next one, that's linked to the next one, like carriages on a train. Now, in one sense, Asperger's and autism are extremes of syndromes that we see in everyday life. Most people that would be called even normal uh, particularly men, have degrees of Asperger's. They can be very stuck in the ways, well, women can as well, but it seems to affect men more. And I want to talk about something called the four stages of learning. 
Now, the first stage of learning is where you don't know that you don't know. So I've worked in IT, I've been a manager in IT, I've you know employed people and I've employed people, IT programmers, presumably you know what they're doing, who come straight out of university. And I noticed that um, they could be quite incompetent, but they thought they knew it all. They thought they've done university, they know what's going on. Well, in fact, they had no idea. But they didn't know that they didn't know. At the stage where you don't know that you don't know, you can't be taught because you think you know it all. Now, most people, not all, but most people were able to become sometimes aware that actually they weren't as wonderful as they thought they were. They didn't know it all. So they moved to stage two, where the stage where you know that you don't know. So at this stage, you can learn. You know you don't know it all. You're listening to people who give advice. You're starting to learn over time. And this is an extended time where you're learning on the job and you're becoming better and better, one assumes. And somewhere down the track, you move to stage three, where you don't know that you know. So in other words, you're actually very knowledgeable, you're very good at your job, but you still have this feeling that you're not very good. Now, this is a common syndrome. It's actually been called the imposter's syndrome, where people think that they're an imposter, they think they're not, they're not very good. It's actually, in many ways, quite healthy. You're learning, you're learning a job, but you have a kind of humility, where you think you don't know it all, you're, you're still able to learn. Um, but what often happens is down the track, you move to stage four, you know that you know. You're very good, you know it all. But what also happens, and it's quite strangely, is that in something like IT, for instance, it moves rapidly. What you thought you knew is no longer applicable. There's new things coming in. And you've actually moved from stage four, you know that you know, to stage one, where you don't know that you don't know. Because what you thought you knew now no longer applies. So this movement, this four stages of learning, is actually this shift from the right side to the left side. When you think you, you or when you don't know that you don't know, stage one, you're stuck in patterns which are no longer applicable. You have to learn new patterns. This is the stage, stage two, where you're learning new patterns and you're moving these patterns. In stage three, you're learning new patterns which become applicable. In stage three, you're able to apply these patterns. Uh, but then in stage four, you come stuck in those patterns. You're no longer able to form new ones. You get this even in relationships. You know, the start of the relationship, both people are just playing out their ordinary patterns. The bloke's um, is a bit of a slob. Gradually he changes. The woman changes. They start to become integrated. They start to, to move into a, a stage where they uh, are able to relate to each other and so on. And then what happens at the end, of course, they get stuck back into a new, a new state. 
So I talked last time about um, what we call relational and instrumental understanding. This was from uh, a bloke called Richard Skemp who, who wrote for an article of the University of Warwick in the UK in 1976. So it goes back quite a long time. The relational understanding is this holistic understanding where you see the whole big picture. The instrumental understanding is where you know just the, the patterns. Schools teach instrumental understanding. They no longer teach people how to think. They only teach them to do certain things. For instance, I uh, heard somebody on the radio saying that schools ought to teach kids how to write a resume because he said this would suit them for when they left school. Now, the reality is, is that if you teach kids how to write good English and you teach them how to form concepts and how to express concepts, they are not only able to write reasonable resumes, they're able to actually take that into the job and do things. But we no longer teach these kind of skills, we just teach patterns and children grow up left-brained. They grow up only knowing systems and how to do things in a sequential way. In the old days, kids used to play. You'd have a box, and the box would be a fire engine, and then it's a, um, a kid puts it on his head and becomes a robot. The, um, there's imagination in play. But nowadays, kids don't play in that way. They used to have a Lego set, and now it's not. It's a Lego set to build a robot. You follow instructions instead of just using your imagination. We no longer play physically. We play sports. Or we go to the gym where we go through a procedure. We go through a process. In the old days, kids used to be thrown out of the house in the morning and they would be left to their own devices. They would simply play out in the, in the bush and they would explore and do things. When I was a kid, I was probably only about 13, and my parents used to put me on a bus on a what called a Red Rover in London, used to be able to travel around on the buses. And I remember one particular time, I didn't get back till about 9 o'clock at night, I got completely lost now. The parents were concerned. It was before the days of mobile phones, but they knew that I would, you know, that was probably, you know, just lost. And sure enough, I, I returned home. That kind of resourcefulness I developed through being left on my own devices. But now we don't do that. Kids are guided. They're helped. They're um, assisted. They're told what to do. They're told even how to think. We're developing a left-brain society. There was a professor at a, a physics at a major US university, and I don't have the link to hand. And he was talking to senior year um, graduates, physics, you know, physics undergraduates. 
And he made a reference to dropping two balls from the top of the university roof, a heavy one and a light one, and remarked that they'd hit the ground at the same time, quite obviously. But the students didn't accept that. They said, oh, no, obviously the heavier ball's going to fall first. Now, these are senior-year physicists. So he got on the board. He did the equation for, you know, for, for velocity. They knew the equation, but they had no concept of how that applied in everyday life. And this is what teaching does. He actually changed his way of teaching and moved much more towards experimentation, where the theories were derived from the practice, rather than simply doing experiments to prove the theories you've already worked out. We know that people who are supposedly intelligent can actually be quite incompetent. And a lot of what passes for intelligence is simply passing exams. You see, people at senior levels in institutions, they get there because they've passed exams. Those exams were set by their professors. And if they were to deviate in opinion substantially from what their professors have set, well, they wouldn't pass the exams. You, you have to be able to think in certain ways. So certain processes are perpetuated through the exam system, the universities. If you were to come out and suggest that, that maybe there's something in astrology or ESP or certain things like this, you would simply not pass exams. You would be ridiculed, probably thrown off the course or told to step in the line. We often see that professors or senior people at universities who have retired will come out with ideas that they would never have come out with when they were employed, because once they've retired, they've got nothing to lose. Universities, universities perpetuate certain ways of thinking. It's not that these ways of thinking are wrong. It's just that they're stuck in, in certain patterns. They're unimaginative. Thank you for listening. You can leave comments on my Podbeam page. You can email me, phil at braham.net. You can visit my website, podcasts.braham.net. And I hope to hear back from you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.